0: from a process standpoint honest to goodness we as a group are pretty good generally what we really need is people so if i had to point where we are lacking i would point at people and how to how to gain them how to retain them how to hold them and how to choose how to get people i would say that by far and away in my opinion is is our weakest link as an industry. And I don't think we're very good at, at finding where to get people.
1: A whole new era of communication in the feed mill industry is coming. Now you have the brightest minds in the global feed mill industry right in your pocket. And what's best, you can listen to all of them while driving to a feed mill, to a farm, traveling, or running errands. It's never been this good and it's never been this simple. We want to thank the innovative companies and products whose support and trust make this podcast possible. Ivonic Animal Nutrition. We are sciencing the global food challenge. Eastman works with you to accelerate your nutrition program innovation. Welcome to the Feed Science Podcast Show, a weekly podcast where you'll find cutting edge insights and all that's working in the global feed mill industry. Ivonic Animal Nutrition is committed to ensure food security and safety while reducing the ecological footprint of animal farming. Its products and services use evidence-based solutions that seek to promote animal welfare and reduce reliance on natural resources. All this is underpinned by long-standing industry partnerships and deep customer understanding. Ivonic's focus on efficiency, sustainable healthy nutrition, and collaborations with livestock farming partners creates value for customers and consumers.
2: Welcome to the Feed Science Podcast. My name is Adam Faranholz, coming to you from North Carolina State University on behalf of Wise Thanks for joining us today. My guest is Chandler Adams. Chandler is the owner of Chandler Adams, LLC, Manufacturer's Rep. Thanks for joining us, Chandler. Well, you're welcome. Happy to be here. Thank you. You bet. So, Chandler... Um, You know, I guess uh, I was gonna say like me, but I'll I'll go with proceeds Uh, another another somebody from Kansas who went to K-State and ended up out here in uh, North Carolina and uh, working around the uh, integrated feed manufacturing and other feed manufacturing areas as well. So um, kind of have a a connection point there. Uh, Know a lot of the same people and all that good stuff. So yeah. That's just a really quick tease to the background, Chandler, if you wouldn't mind, uh, if you wouldn't mind telling everybody kind of your general background uh, and how you got to be doing what you're doing today and uh, what exactly that is that you do on a day-to-day basis.
0: Well, I'm head janitor of Chandler Adams LLC too, so I guess that's a good thing, but I grew up (laughs) in Western Kansas on a farm and went to K-State and got tied into the feed science program through Keith Binky and... Uh, Keith Pike. Keith Pike's at Purina. Keith Pike was a 4-H'er for my grandfather, and so was Keith Binky. So they both knew my grandfather, and that was a little bit of my tie to feed science at K-State. And then we worked with Purina Mills out of Wichita, and a guy named Tom Adams, no relation. And I became, well, he was a early mentor, and he talked me into going to K-State, too. So I had several different people from where I grew up that tied me into the K-State Feed Science Program. And then after that, I went to work for CPM and then Novus International and then a company called Outside Food Safety, which was acquired by Ecolab. And that was all in chemistry and antimicrobials. And then I bought my present manufacturer's rep business from a a wonderful man named Jim Hudson. And that was, I don't even remember, 17 or 18 years ago. (laughs) And, uh, at, at the
2: time that you you bought it how how long had Jim been down in in this area this area
0: I say that like everybody's in the same area he started as a manufacturer's rep in nineteen sixty two and okay. when he was freshly out of college, maybe he was maybe he was twenty three or twenty four uh, and he m- moved to Montana for i believe three years before he came back to the, the Atlantic coast, so he's more or less than sixty five I'm probably off a year or two there gotcha so. When we say manufacturers rep, for those
2: that that might not understand that, a lot of times when we're we're dealing with um, the purchasing or the R and M on maintenance or things like that, a lot of times there's there's someone in between us and the 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 company whose badge is on that side of the piece of equipment. So, can you explain a little bit what does a manufacturer's rep do and Generally, how many companies are usually repping at one time?
0: So the amount of companies fluctuates based on acquisitions in the business and, mm-hmm. and, and uh, what the industry is doing. So I've moved up and down with different companies that I repped or that I have rep or I do rep. But I rep companies like CPM, Ross Camp Champion, Beta Raven, Leydig. I rep Scott Equipment. I rep Erlanco. I do all my own steam and air work. I, uh, I rep APEC. I have different agreements with different companies like Rotex and 4B and several different OEM situations, but, uh, I rep a company called City Manufacturing, which is in conveyors. I rep RNC, which is in conveyors. And then I build a lot of my own things. So different things I rep, different things are my design or I have people manufacture things for me. Uh... It just, it just depends on what, what I'm doing at the time. And it, as I said, it fluctuates up and down based on the industry and goes in a little bit of a cycle, but uh, everything in a feed mill. And then like with crown iron for crush, I I work with the processing equipment, more or less everything. Some things are, uh, I don't mean to sound arrogant, but some things kind of bore me just, you know, general screw conveyors and things like that. I don't really enjoy as much just because it's not as as much fun, but, Uh, anything that becomes more difficult or takes more process knowledge or experience or whatever, those, those challenges are the things I like. And so I rep several different companies, but most of it's in feed milling. Gotcha. So to, to kind of follow up on what you said about
2: the, the stuff you're interested in and not to, you know, I won't throw any names out there or anything specifically, but not to, not to say that any of those more simple types of processing equipment, you know, but some of my screw conveyors, is a screw conveyor. It's like you can change the flighting, you can change whatever. What interests you is the fact that, oh, if you're going to do something like a drag conveyor or a bucket elevator, well, what type of belt do you want? What type of buckets do you want? Why are you doing these different fasteners? Where are you going to put a sensor? All that other stuff. Stuff that's got a lot of different possibilities to it is what you like. Right.
0: Or how do we design it so it doesn't break? Or how do we design it so you don't really have to do much maintenance on it for a period of years? If it if it becomes more of a challenge, or I see it as an opportunity for my customer where they're making mistakes over time, I like to fix those mistakes the best I can. And I'm not perfect, but uh, if if it's something that I see a need for, then I enjoy it. If it's just generic, it's it's just not as much fun to me, so I don't spend time on it. I don't know sure. if that's a, a good way to answer that question. And again, I don't mean I don't mean it in an arrogant way. It's just a challenge versus not a challenge.
2: Right. Yeah. no, that absolutely makes sense. So. Thinking of that thinking along those lines, and thinking about challenges from a, a you know, I'll ask from a general perspective, but you could certainly you know throw in specific examples that make sense to you. What equipment projects today end up having like the biggest overall impact on on mills? And it, it could be new, it could be you know renovation. But it, you know, I have X dollars to spend. I want to spend it on the, the one process area within the mill. Where should I spend my money? Wh- what makes the most sense?
0: well it depends because every <laughs> feed mill is different yep. and what different feed mills require or need or or what their limiting link in their chain is every single one is different so there there's not a right or a wrong answer unless you look at it this way which is what is the right answer what is going to give me the biggest bang for my buck or 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 provide the most cost improvement or the highest production increase for the amount of money spent. So that's typically how I would look at it, unless you have a ground grain leg that is full of holes and you have to have it changed. And you know, if you don't have ground corn, you can't make feed, right? So uh, the answer is it depends. And it depends specifically on that situation. It could be a boiler. It could be a new transformer. It could be a new loadout system. It could be anything. So it just depends on the on the location,
2: it, is it a challenge specifically? You know, you just threw out something like the whole whole grain, like coming in, and it's got holes and stuff in it. Is it a challenge when you're working with folks in the industry, and they say, "Hey, I got to replace this. I just kind of want to replace it with the same thing we've had." For you to, you know, to come in and and get them to say, well, yeah, but if you're changing it out anyway, why don't we upgrade a little bit? Are, are folks usually pretty interested in the upgrade or is, is that is that something that's hard to get people to right. see and the it future?
0: It depends on the, on the situation. So, you know, I use a term that I always want to be moving the ball forward and I use that all the time. If you're going to spend money, let's spend good money. Let's move that ball forward. However, if you have a ground grain leg, a ground corn leg, and it's worked for 25 years. And it has holes in it because it's just slam wore out. And you have all the same buckets and belts and motors and drives and everything on the shelf. And there's not a lot of improvement to be made. And you're not looking to increase production. I mean, I would almost design it exactly. If you're upset because the head section corrodes off because it's, it's, you know, fine ground corn and it's, you know, retaining too much moisture, fine. Let's put a stainless head section on it. But I don't know that I would change the design of the conveyor or of the leg that much if it served its purpose for years and years and years now, if it tracks like watch my mouth or if it doesn't track well, <laughs> or if, it, if it's always giving problems or it, it, it plugs or it doesn't flow right. And we need another five foot elevation because you're in fine ground corn now versus corn or whatever. Well then certainly you have to make those changes. So do I find it challenging? And the, you know, the answer again, it depends on the situation. The, uh, I much prefer to try to talk my customers into spending good money on the front and then targeting very little hands on that piece of equipment for years and years and years. And the model I use is like soy crush operations. You know, they'll go they'll run for for 52 weeks and sometimes they'll run for two years before they literally take the facility down. Now, they're doing maintenance in between, but it's not maintenance like the feed mill world thinks. But they design their conveyors, they design their legs, they design their screws, they design their drives, their motors, their, their equipment is designed to run 24-7, you know, functionally forever. And what I see my customers is, is they really search and they're starved for good people. Mm-hmm. What I see them is missing the boat on, on design engineering situations that are already already thought through. Costs another fifty or a hundred thousand dollars or whatever it is, but if you don't have to do the maintenance on it and it, go, and it doesn't go down, it's worth a fortune to a, to a big operation. So I do have a challenge there, but I try to again always move the ball forward.
2: It it occurs to me that maybe one of the things that you know, and, and not to speak for you, but. That you would try to do to set yourself apart from others that would just come in and sell stuff then is, is make sure you're asking the right questions like that. Then, you know, how has it performed? What problems have you had with it? Instead of just saying, Oh, you want another one of those? Yeah, I can get you one of those. And, you know, here's, here's who you call, but actually asking the right questions. And maybe there's something they don't even know that they would like to do better, but asking the questions gets you there.
0: Yeah, that's right. And and I'm certainly not perfect. And all the different customers that watch this will laugh and throw eggs at me and deservedly <laughs> so, which is fine. But I, uh, I do have their best interest. I, I take that very, very personally. So I do try to make the right decisions or not lead them along, but lead them with questions or get their minds out of the box to think about something new or innovative or, you know, I would call it better. Right. But um, in, in some cases you can't, but in some cases, I believe a, a person that's bringing projects or products to the industry, they always should, they always should try to improve. So I, that's just kind of how I live.
2: Yeah, that makes, that makes great sense. So kind of continuing it on and that idea of, of making things better. What? Might be as some really interesting, you know, small, relatively inexpensive investments uh, that end up having like an oversized, outsized impact on ROI that you've seen. I'm, I'm thinking along the lines of, you know, when you mentioned somebody like CPM, and it's like, hey, this one small little change the next time you order a die is actually going to have you're going to buy the die anyway. It could have this huge impact on your on your throughput or something. What are some you know, hey, this is relatively easy and, and, and relatively inexpensive. You ought to give it a try.
0: Yeah, thinking out of the box on hole size is the easiest thing. So if you're stuck on five thirty-second pellets, which is a four millimeter pellet, you know, bumping it up two tenths of a millimeter, which nobody can see, and it opens up the open area of that die significantly, and you'll see a you'll see a great improvement. Or you move from a four and a half millimeter to a four point seven millimeter, or what have you. Because you can open up the open area, and when you open up the open area, Pelham mill runs much easier. And then you stack, you stack your effective thickness accordingly. But open area is huge on a Pelham mill die. Uh, types of metal, uh, how how it's made, are huge. But the biggest, easiest impact in the world for Pelham mill dies is hole size. Yeah.
2: Anything in you know similar vein as you look at things in the in the grinding room or in batching and mixing in scaling where it's yeah, hey, this would be a really cheap
0: upgrade, but it'd really help you out. Okay, so look at grinding. I am a lover of stacking hammers in a in a hammer mill. Anybody that's been around me knows this. I like to be able to transfer the horsepower across the hammers and the rod. And if you do your mathematics on inertia, once the rotor's up and moving, the inertia or I should say, the hammer, the horsepower consumed to keep the the rotor or the flywheel turning is very very small, and the improvement that you get in grinding through that is very easy. That's one of the easiest things in the world to to change about grinding is stacking hammers in your hammer mill, making sure you describe scared. that. Describe that real quick. What stacking hammers mean? Uh, how many hammers per square inch? of rod availability and how many hammers per square inch of horsepower ability and there's ratios there that I like to live by and then I like to push them now granted you can get so much that you can get so stupid if you will that you're you are um the the rotor plates and the the rods won't hold that many hammers so you go right up to the edge of the envelope When you back up a little bit just to stay conservative and then you stack the hammers accordingly and you go to grind. And when you do that, granted, you're putting more hammers in the machine, but then you can increase the whole size of the screens and your production goes up and your grind stays as good or better. And everybody's happy and it's much easier to grind in a hammerman with bigger screens than it is smaller screens. So let the hammers do the work. It's like a golf club. Let the golf club do the work. Don't, don't rock hammers and wear out holes and make the screens do the work. Let the hammers do the work. That's the easiest thing in grinding that I see. If you go to batching, and I love batching, everybody has had the same number of scales for years and years and years. And one of the easiest, quickest ways to improve feed production over the course of a week or a month or a year is to add more scales whether that's micro scales or mineral scales or another minor scale or a tweener scale or what have you, adding more scales allows you to to scale quicker and then you batch quicker because there's so many mistakes that happen in batching. You know, you're running out of ingredients or a slide gate doesn't work or you're, you're changing a formula and you're moving something around or the nutritionist is stacking too many doggone ingredients on your micro scale There's, you know, the, the, not excuses, but the issues go on and on and on and scales is a huge thing in batching. And in my opinion, batching is the cheapest money in the feed mill. So why don't you spend money in batching? When I say batching, I mean scaling, mixing, uh, elevation to the roof, uh, spend the money there so that your expensive money, which is pelleting, somewhat grinding, your expensive money never runs out of feed. Mm-hmm. Spend the cheap money on a scale or improving a mash leg or improving a mixer or what have you, so you never run out of feed on the pellet mills because that's expensive money, and that's one yeah. of the easiest impacts for feed production there is in Joe Blow feed mill.
2: So just to give give folks an idea, right? And and I'm I'm right there with you. And it's kind of like, well, there's a major scale, maybe there's a minor scale, there's a micro system over there, and then um oh, maybe now tote. Without, you know, obviously sharing anything that would be proprietary or confidential. But in your experience, how, what is the largest number of scales you've seen put into a facility that's then successful, right? That it's like, no, they didn't go overboard and it was just too much, but it actually works because I think the number is going to surprise people.
0: So, and I'm not talking about a premix operation. Sure, right. Where you're, where you're making a premix because those scales become endless. And I, I'm just talking about a major, feed manufacturing facility and because the commercial people they they have a plethora of scales and layouts based on what, what feed mill is what but in general integrated world the general integrated world 13 yeah. you know maybe 15 and i think the industry has been wrong for forever and we design the ingredient to fit the scales and that is just asinine to me we should design the scales to fit the ingredients. The money's in the ingredients. There's no money in scales. It's all in the ingredients. And how, how quickly we can scale and how, how accurate we can scale, and then the flexibility that that gives a facility, that to me is a lot better road to, to go down than going backwards of that. So 13, 15, uh, many, many, many people have nine now. Uh, and I would like to see more within reason, um, sure. because I like to have all my scaling done in a minute and a half, I'm done in a minute and a half. I don't have to do that, but I can so that when I'm having a bad day and something happens and a bin's hung up and you're beating on the salt bin or, or whatever it is, and you're out of, you're out of, I don't know, trace mineral or whatever it is. I don't know that you can catch up and you can batch so quickly that you can outrun your pellet mills because again the pellet mills are the expensive money, and if you can scale in a minute and a half, and then you can hold your your uh, dead times or your or your weights where the, the scale is is uh, doing a good job of calculation and send the data to the computer, then you can become very accurate. So are you super accurate on corn? Does anybody really care? No, not really. But you really want to be super, super accurate on enzymes, and you really want to be super, super accurate on things that are expensive, whether that's vitamins or amino acids or enzymes, those high-dollar things. Those are the ingredients you want to be on the money with, and that takes a little bit of scale settle time to, to land on the perfect number.
2: One of one of the phrases I've found myself using a lot, and, and I think it goes with your idea of, of spending the smart money, is is buying time, right? And that's a cheap way for me to buy time. And when something else went wrong later, okay, I can catch up now because I literally bought myself a minute a batch over here by spending this money. That was a good investment because I bought time. And that's the one thing we can't, you know, we, we don't get more of. There's six right. hours in a day. So if I can buy time, then I'll
0: buy it when I can. I totally agree. And then just because you can scale in a minute and a half, you know, it's very hard to mix in a minute and a half, but if you can mix in two minutes or two and a half minutes, but then you want your mash leg to outrun your mixer, right? So you don't want the whole world waiting on your mash leg. I would prefer it to wait on the mixer. And then mm-hmm. I'd like to have the mixer designed for two and a half minutes, three minutes tops. And then the mash leg outruns a mixer and the scales outrun the mixer so that the mixer is your, 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 Weakest link right there, and you know what it is. Mm-hmm. And then you go up and you run through your feed cleaner and you go above pelleting. But the whole batching system should be designed 50% ahead of pelleting. So if you can pellet 100 ton an hour, I want you to be able to batch 150 tons an hour. And that will get you out of so many jams over the course of a year. It'd, it'd, it'd blow your mind. Yeah, I think,
2: I think people get scared about that too, right? They get scared of 50%. And it's just like, again it's as far as an investment goes, it's, we're not talking about a huge investment there. Those aren't the most expensive pieces of equipment. So yeah, you don't, you don't know what's, you don't know what's coming or what low bulk density ingredient Someone's going to shove into your process or whatever else, or, you know, in our world, hurricanes coming and, to heck with the pellet mill. Like we're going to, whatever we got to do to feed, to to get as much feed out of here as we possibly can and fill every bin on every farm. You know, I I need, I don't need a big pellet mill at that point. I need a darn big batching system though. Yeah. Fast batching system. There you go. Fast. Right. Yeah. And so
0: there's the feed ingredient companies are coming up with new ingredients every day. And I tell people all the time, if you rewind 20 years, The amount of feed ingredients we had 20 years ago or 10 years ago versus the ingredients we have today, it you know it parts your hair. Yeah. And if we had more scales, you would have more feed ingredients. Because I promise you, every (laughs) in the country wants more feed ingredients. Whether that's right or wrong, I mean it's it's just the way of the world, and that will you know continue to become more refined based on science. So you know don't let scales, don't ever let scales limit you. It's a bad move.
2: Yep. Great point. Once again, my guest today is Chandler Adams, owner of Chandler Adams, LLC, Manufacturer's Representative. So I I guess next, we we often ask questions or ask questions about, you know, uh, what's what's an opinion or something that someone has that might be in contrary, but I'm going to take it a little different direction with you and and ask, in your career and, and seeing a lot of different technology come and go, Do you have an example of something that's maybe been like the most dismissed equipment technology where where people's like, ah, I don't need that, or ah, that'll never take off or something that now everybody has or everybody wants to have that, you know, everybody's telling you, that'll never, that'll never be a thing.
0: Controls. Okay. You know, if the lights don't work, it's the control company's fault. But it's because people don't understand it. It's hard to understand discrete versus analog versus Ethernet, I.O. versus fiber versus some virtualization of software and virtualization of switches. And what the heck are we doing with with this versus that? And doggone it. You know, this isn't working today. Well, I'm not saying software doesn't have bugs. You know, obviously it does. But control systems show up to work every day. And automation is the thing that I would say as a general rule. Uh, has, has always been, you know, the ugly, the ugly thing in, in feed milling because very few people understand it. And in my mind, it has the, it has one of the the single biggest impacts for efficiency that you can have. And, and I, and I'm not just talking about how to control batching or how to control a pellet mill or how to control whatever. I'm talking about full automation where the nutritionists does his his matrix and he gets the ingredients he wants based on price and he kicks in a formula. The purchasing guy has full access to everything that's happening in that feed mill at any point in time. And he cuts a PO and you can pull the ingredients on, on a code or a purchase order code or what have you into receiving where uh, the long story short is full automation. So all the handshakes back and forth to the company are seamless and you don't have clerical errors and you don't have people involved it's done through automation, and when you do that, you make fewer mistakes. And when you make fewer mistakes, everything runs better. Receiving is your first line of defense, and typically, people hire people to you know beat on rail cars and beat mm-hmm. on trucks. And you know nobody really wants to do that, and they're not always the people in those positions are always understanding of what they're unloading. They don't know the difference between poultry meal and bean meal or canola meal or or rice hulls or whatever it is. Um, Limestone versus phosphate or whatever, or trace. So if we can eliminate many mistakes there because of our handshake automation to the purchasing and the nutrition part of these companies, that eliminates a lot of issues that happen over the course of a year. And you don't mix bean meal and corn. and You don't mix phosphate and limestone or what have you. you know, you're not putting salt in the, in the wheat mids bin or whatever it is. Um, automating that seamlessly is something people should do. And then on the flip side, on loadout, the exact same way, everything needs to be a perfect handshake. And that's better because of contracts and payments and whatnot you know, to growers. But uh, all of the automation from start to finish needs to be seamless and that's something people don't understand and they don't understand how it works so because of that i would say it's lagging compared to say a a mixer or a feed cleaner or a new receiving leg or or you know a, a new set of ladder track for rail because you can understand what you know unloading 100 cars in 15 hours pays it's hard to understand what a better under, a better automation system will will Gain you because you don't understand automation as well. That would be something I would say.
2: Okay. So, so kind of gaming out what what that discussion goes like it, you know we're out there and there's a facility and it's like hey you should really consider investing in in really updating your controls and they say ah, i mean we've got a system And it yeah it's paper-based but it's it it works well and that's that technology is i'll never and then you start doing it and they go god it's getting it getting it's set up and then and then you come back two years later when they finally have learned it and they go oh my god i cannot believe that we were doing this just three years ago on paper what the heck were we thinking is that about yeah. right
0: yeah. And then here's a, here's a easy, maybe a different example. So you walk into a warehouse and they might have eight pellet mill dies, $10,000 a die or $15,000 a die or whatever it is. And they know they have to have those pellet mill dies. They know it. And I would say to them, well, what are you going to do without a computer? You think your thumbs are fast, but man, you can't do anything without a computer. Yeah. And it's because it's harder for people to understand and they don't like it and it's foreign to them. So consequently, it doesn't it doesn't get the the love and attention that I believe we should be doing, you know, present day.
2: Yeah, makes great sense. So what then do you think might be the next thing along those lines? Like, what's the next big thing that people should be really paying attention to that's going to make their life better if they if they see it coming and early adopt it?
0: Well, it depends. Um, technology wise. You know, I we had a thing in September, and I was able to sit with an attorney for the North Carolina Chamber of Commerce, and he was asking me the same type of questions. And I said, well, from a process standpoint, honest to goodness, we as a group are pretty good, generally. What we really need is people. So if I had to point where we are lacking, I would point at people and how to how to gain them, how to retain them, how to hold them and how to choose how to get people. I would say that by far and away, in my opinion, is is our weakest link as an industry. And I don't think we're very good at at finding where to get people. And then if we get them in a feed mill, who wants to work there? Because it smells and it's dirty and it's hot and you have to scoop feed and stuff's leaking in your ear and down your neck. You go home and your wife makes a change in the garage, and you ruin your clothes, and you ruin your pickup, and you you know all those type of things. And I think that you know that to me is the biggest challenge we have face that we have facing us is what are we going to do? Because I see the people as by far and away the biggest lacking part of our equation.
2: Yeah, I, hard I, I You know, well, yeah, and you're and you're certainly speaking you know, my language there. And, you know, it's one of the things that, uh, you know, obviously we're tasked with here at the university and, and in a feed milling program and, uh, gives us some stress too, uh, from that standpoint of everybody from the operator up through management, where are they going to come from and how do we find them? And I was having a conversation with somebody, the other day; I don't remember who it was. And it was like, you know, here I've gone and gotten all these degrees and everything, and if you give me a choice between sitting at my desk or being in the feed mill, I want to be in the feed mill. You know, you've built this this company, and, and you're known up and down the East Coast and, and going west and all this other kind of stuff. And given the opportunity, most days you'd like to be in the feed mill. And it's like, so I know we can find successful people that also like being in the feed mill. That yeah, it is hot and dirty and dusty and whatever else. And you know, I'm gonna curse when I smack my knuckle on this or whatever. But given the opportunity, that's where I still want to be. And how do I you know what either is what either is intrinsically right or wrong? it might be wrong with us to be frank um but what is it about the folks that are going to be successful and operate at a high level but that also will fall in love with the feed mill and want to be there and trying to figure out what that is, is I mean, I I wish I knew what it was and I could go, you know, go talk to the people over in genetics and like, what's the gene? Find, find me the gene so I can go test people for it because I don't know what it is. It's hard to find.
0: Well, there's still a lot of mechanical people out there that are working on motorcycles or cars on the weekend or they're racing or they're doing whatever. But I also think that means we have to give them a good working environment. Yeah. So the, you know, fixing the same thing time after time after time after time at three o'clock in the morning when they know how to fix her, they know it should be replaced or whatever, giving them a good working environment so that you can retain people. You know, people, I don't know, people become very frustrated when the definition of insanity is their life every week, where they're mm-hmm. doing the same mistake time and time and time again. And I see it over and over and over again and because generally speaking, the females don't get love. Yeah. processing plants and hatcheries and you know the further down the food chain that gets more money and it has a better working environment and it has um better pay and this and that uh i think there's plenty of mechanical guy or not guys but people as long as you give them a good working environment so that would be one thing that i see is something that we could correct to help retain the people um make it a better Environment.
2: Yeah, it's a great, That's a great point. I hadn't hadn't quite thought of it in those terms, but but I like that the idea of it's. We're never going to probably air condition the entire place, and it's always going to be dusty and everything else. But yeah, if if you're only climbing on top of the mixer to do something with the fat line once every two years or something, not like yep, every time the temperature drops below this, the first thing we right. do in the morning is come and do this. I don't want to work here anymore. They're right. not even trying to fix it. Exactly.
0: Yeah. Yep. Yeah. I see it a lot.
2: Yeah, and that's that's a great segue into kind of what I had down here as, as uh, my last question, at least on the the topic of the day, is when you are working on these projects with with folks and and you know you're involved sometimes when they're doing um you know a, a new build's going to happen and it's time to select equipment and stuff you'll you'll be involved in that process or you might be involved in a renovation that's going on or you might just be involved in hey chandler i mean i made this call you know to you more than one time hey chandler my pellet mill is falling apart i need a few parts kind of thing which parts do i need what are the things that you find that facilities do the most wrong in those situations when it's time to select equipment or make the, make the purchase or design? Like, is it a planning issue? Is it a not investment issue? I mean, it's probably some of all of those, but what are the things that, you know, you talked about definition of insanity from your perspective that you're just banging your head against the wall and going, not again, they're going to do it again. Kind of a
0: thing. Oh yeah. So, In my mind, whatever piece of equipment you select, you are marrying that piece of equipment for 30 years, maybe longer, which means you're marrying that design, you're marrying parts availability, you're marrying what's going to happen in the future, and is it going to be with that piece of equipment or something different? And cheap, you know, it's the first word that comes up, oh, well, this guy's cheaper than that guy, or this thing's cheaper than that thing, or whatever. So if it's something that's easily replaced... That's one thing. But if it if it's part of the core, you know, foundation of a facility, you want to make the wise decision. You want to make the right decision. And it's, you can go to complex after complex after complex. And some of these pellet mills have been around forever. There's nothing left on the complex that's saddled except for the pellet mill. And I watch people go cheap and I think that's crazy because you're going to be making chicken feed in this facility 50 years from today, it's going to happen. Just be smart and let it run for the next 30 years or 50 years or whatever. And, and don't, don't, don't purchase something that's cheaper just because your number can look better for this quarter. And then that person that makes that decision moves on to a different complex or a different company or what have you. Um, because he's not responsible for it anymore. So the private companies typically have a better, they run it more like a business. The private companies, because it's family money or it's their money versus corporate stockholder money. I see better decisions, generally speaking, from the private companies in that world than I do somebody that can shirk their responsibility. But I would, I would encourage people to understand they're marrying that device for 30 years. And so choose wisely.
2: Yeah. Yeah. It's funny. I I ended up with a, uh, a personal example. I think of that just uh, this past weekend, you know, so the, the drain pump on the dishwasher goes out and I could go on to everybody's favorite online marketplace and order one that I have no idea where it comes from. Um, We can guess, or I can hand wash dishes for a few extra days, get an actual OEM replacement and install it. And hopefully not have to fix it again. It's like, which do I want to do? Do I want to crawl under this dishwasher again in six months to replace the, the thing that's broken to save myself, you know, I don't know, 30 bucks and, and a few days of not washing dishes? Or do I suck it up and then now I have to do it again until the rest of the dishwasher falls apart?
0: Right. Yeah. yeah. So my first automobile was a 1957 Chevy pickup. It was Army Green. Fifty dollars. There my grandpa go. got it for me and I paid him $50 and it had a six cylinder thirty-five engine in it. And everything broke on that thing. Every 30 days, I could drive it for 30 days roughly. And then something would break. And you had to go to the junkyard or you had to order things through whatever catalog. Then it'd take 30 days to get it in and 30 days to fix it. So I could run about 30 days and then I couldn't drive for 30 days. And my dad loves cars. He's a, he's a gearhead, but it broke me of buying cheap (laughs) because I hated not being able to drive when you're out in the middle of nowhere and you have to ride the school bus instead of driving. You know, when you're 16, 15, 14, whatever, that's a big deal. And that broke me of cheap. So I guess I'm blessed with that, but, uh, just make a wise, make a wise business decision. Yeah. Not a cheap quarterly business decision. I think when you make cheap quarterly decisions, it's wrong, at least in feed milling. because It's going to yeah. be there forever.
2: Yeah, yeah, forever. No matter how many somebody else in the company has told you, oh, I mean, about 10 years, we're going to build a new one. Mm. Not going to happen. Until that, not even when they broke ground on it, until that thing has started up, you might just want to take that with a grain of salt. Because you ain't done with that old one until that new one is running, much less, right. oh, we started building it
0: that's right oh man is that ever true is that a fact
1: it's time for our famous three eastman serves veterinarians and nutritionists in agrochemical and animal health industries by helping them select evaluate and implement innovative nutritional programs eastman worked with your team to customize your gut health approach in feed and water Eastman's approach addresses nutritional and bacterial challenges and finds new ingredient preservation and hygiene solutions. Explore ways to accelerate and innovate your programs. Contact the Animal Nutrition Team at eastman.com.
2: Well, I've enjoyed our conversation. We're going to uh, finish up here with a a few questions that we we ask a lot. Um, The first one is, from a resource perspective in in your career and in, in what you do, but just in feed million in general for that matter, what have you found to be a good resource that you could share with people to say hey this is this is a,
0: a good place to go So I was taught off of f m t three feed manufacturing technology three the brown book, a case the thing. brown one the brown one, the ugly one and it's ugly <laughs> And I used it for a while, but I used it for reference only because it was easy to go to the appendix and indexes and get the conversions and things that I wanted, whether it was on Steam or distance or weight or whatever it was. But from a resource standpoint, I don't really use anything that's in written form or online. I'll Google whatever conversion I need, but uh, people. That's by far and away the best resource. And I know a lot of people. So I know who to call, when to call, and, you know, you know, have the early pleasant niceties and, you know, catch up on their families and things and then get, you know, right to the meat. And I love being able to do that because I know enough people that uh, that's by far and away the best resource in this business is the people. I don't, I don't know of anything that's written. I don't know how you write it all down. Yeah. But uh, people it would be the answer.
2: Yeah, there's so much so much bizarre stuff that there's no like I said, there's no way it gets written down in, in, a, in a book. But there's a decent chance if you've built a network that somebody out there has experienced something like what you've experienced before. And you can say, hey, how did you deal with this or something like that? It's a great yeah. answer. I, I like that answer a lot. When you're dealing um with folks really in any any aspect of, of what you do, um I've kind of got in my mind the the mill management and, and um like the maintenance management, things like that, but it could be anybody. What are you know, if you had to pick a characteristic that any of them have that kind of like, Hey, these are the ones, these are the ones that I know are the most successful, what they do. And they all shared this characteristic personality trait, whatever it is, is there something that comes to mind that they're just, they're all good at this. Two things.
0: Every single person that I know that's successful in this business works very hard. I, I am a believer in that. I believe if, even if you're, if you're just, you know, a, a 50 on a one to hundred and you know, brain power or whatever. In this business, it doesn't really matter as long as you work hard. If you work hard, you can be as successful as you choose to be. And then secondly, you care. And if you care and you're willing to work hard, I am telling you, everybody in this business will love you. They will hire you. They will let you do whatever because you have those two traits. And I mean, integrity goes with it and willing to learn and willing to, you know, work with people, you know, all those other things. But if you work hard and you care, man, that's number one and that's number two. And if you have that, man, you you have it figured out. You have to show up to work and you have to do all the different, you know, little things that you learned in kindergarten, right? But <laughs> outside of that, that's really all you need. Yep, that's a that's a
2: fantastic message to end on, Chandler. I appreciate your time. Thanks a lot. Yep, thank you very much, and nice to see you. Yeah, you as well. For Wisenetics, I'm Adam Ferenholz here at NC State in the Feed Milling Program. Appreciate your time. This has been the Feed Science Podcast. If you've enjoyed the podcast, please leave a comment, rate, review, um, either on YouTube or wherever you get your podcasts. Thanks a lot. We'll talk to you soon.
1: elevate your brand and captivate
0: audiences through the power of podcasting? Look no further. Introducing the custom podcast brought to you by Wise Metrics, where we take care of the behind the scenes so that you can focus on what truly matters podcasting has become an invaluable tool for brand awareness but let's face it putting it into practice can be a daunting task it's incredibly time consuming and requires technical know-how but don't worry we've got you covered with our experienced team at the help we'll handle the operational aspects
1: so you can channel your energy into what your company does best are you ready to unleash the podcasting potential of your company? Schedule a call with one of our specialists today at the link in the bottom of this episode.
0: You'll also receive a free podcast strategy consult tailored to the unique needs and goals of your business.